policy is not really the core divide in American politics. The parties change policy certainly over the course of a couple decades pretty dramatically. I mean, if you go look at Bill Clinton's 1996 Democratic Party platform, it sounds on immigration like Donald Trump does today. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Well, it is finally happening. The United Kingdom is about to leave the European Union, the first country to leave the EU in its history. On the continent, this is actually being celebrated to some extent as a success. In 2016, the Brexiteers said that Europeans would be unable to cooperate in the negotiations, that the German car industry would swoop in and tell Angela Merkel to give Britain a really lenient deal. None of those things happened. And because the British political scene has not exactly looked appealing for the last few years, there doesn't seem to be a contagion effect from Brexit. Italexit, Grexit might still happen at some point. It does not look like they're about to happen in the next couple of years. So perhaps the EU is in good shape. Well, I don't think so. I think this is a moment in which Europeans should think very hard about the institutions of the European Union. And that's the case for three reasons. The first is that we now have authoritarian populists in the heart of the European Union, in Poland and in Hungary, and increasingly in a few other places as well. And while German or French citizens might understand why they should pool their sovereignty with other Europeans in order to deal with some of the big problems in the world, I think it'll become harder and harder to explain to them why they should share the sovereignty with a quasi-dictator in Warsaw or Budapest. The second reason has to do with a long-standing democratic deficit in the European Union. As a voter in Germany, you might vote for some political party that will then decide who to go into a coalition with, which will then elect a chancellor, that a chancellor will then appoint a minister. And that minister twice a year goes to Brussels and decides on all kinds of laws that are actually binding for you. Even the one democratic counterweight, the European Parliament, isn't really followed by the public. People vote for parties for the European Parliament on domestic political considerations rather than because they have an idea of what kind of laws the Parliament should support at the European level. Both of these aspects of a democratic deficit are very serious. And the third point is that there is a kind of fiction inscribed in the heart of the European Union from its founding as the European Union rather than the European Community in the Maastricht Treaty uh, in the early 90s, which is that uh, Europe would have an ever closer union, that there's only one way and that is forward. Well, I think actually a lot of people in Europe like the idea of having strong connections with European neighbours, they have positive views of the European Union, but they don't want to have ever closer union. The idea that we can give up on nationhood and patriotism altogether, that we should more and more become Europeans rather than Germans or Italians or Swedes does not seem very appealing to most people. And I think if we ask them to choose between being Swedes and Europeans, they will choose to be Swedes. To make sure that we don't ask that of them, we need to give up on the fiction of ever closer union. Look, the achievements of the founders of the European Union are momentous. But the right way to honor the legacy of everybody from Jean Monnet to Konrad Adenauer is not to keep doing everything by their exact playbook, to keep protecting the exact institutions they put in place. 
It is to understand that complicated political circumstances require real institutional reform and imagination. And instead of being content about the state of the European Union, Brexit should be an opportunity to reform those institutions in a serious way. Well, today I'm really excited to introduce a conversation with Ezra Klein. Ezra doesn't really need an introduction. He is the co-founder of Vox. He is one of the most incisive voices about our contemporary politics. And he is thinking in a new book called Why We're Polarized about why we're polarized and to some extent what we can do about that. We had a wide-ranging conversation about the big changes in American politics over the last 60 years, the institutional and psychological and economic sources of our polarization, and a little bit about whether that American story actually fits in with the story of polarization in other countries around the world. It's a really fun discussion and points, a really fun debate about a really interesting book. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Ezra, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm thrilled to be here. Listen, so the problem with writing books with very catchy titles is that then you owe an answer to them. So why are we polarized? It's so funny. When I came up with that title, I realized that people are going to start it that way and be like, well, I have 350 pages. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the, the kind of big version of the story. Polarization is something that is not new to our political system. It's not new to political systems. One of the things that I think people underestimate is that we baseline our idea of American politics into the 20th century. And the 20th century was a very weird period in American politics. It was a nadir of political party polarization because functionally we were working with a four-party system. We had Democrats and conservative Southern Dixiecrats and liberal Republicans and Republicans. And that scrambled everything. And It made American politics, due to some unusual factors of how American politics work that we can talk about, more apparently functional. But it also meant that we accepted these pretty horrifying compromises in politics, like Southern Dixiecrats as part of the governing Democratic Party blocked all anti-lynching and civil rights laws for a very long time. So what happens in the 20th century is the Civil Rights Act begins the rupture of these alliances. And over the next 30, 40 years, the Southern Dixiecrats become conservative Republicans. The liberal Republicans in the Northeast largely become liberal Democrats. And with that ideological polarization in place now, so the left, the Democratic Party is the liberal party, the Republican Party is the conservative party, a number of other demographic and identity dimensions begin polarizing as well. So we become much more polarized by race, by religion, by geography, by culture, by psychology, in fact. And as we stack these identities, and we should talk about identity on top of each other, the coalitions become much more ideologically and compositionally different from each other. And as a quite rational human response, more afraid of each other. Um, it's harder to see yourself on the other side. It is more rational to worry about the way the other side will govern because fewer people like you who think like you are in it. And so it's that fundamental story that causes polarization. Now, the last thing I'll say on this is that one of the big arguments in the book is that polarization itself does not have to be a problem. There was a lot of effort in mid-century American politics to make American politics more polarized because it's considered a problem by political scientists that the two parties did not present a clear choice. The problem here is the way polarization interacts with a very unusual form of political decision-making that requires high levels of compromise, getting over a lot of different veto points. So in many ways, the problem here is that polarization has made American politics ungovernable, but it's not the 
polarization has done that, and it's the American politics that actually has the problems we might want to think about revisiting. So that's really helpful, and it touches on a lot of the major themes in your book, and now we can spend the next 17 hours breaking this Wonderful! You said you have no hard stops, so you know, 17 <laughs> hours it is. So starting with the historical piece of this, I mean, you just invoked this famous APSA, American Political Science Association report from the 1950s, which basically says it's this huge problem that we don't have polarized political parties. Because, you know, if you take a consistently liberal view on certain things and somebody else takes a consistently conservative view on certain things, you'd hope that you have political champions for that. But because the Democratic Party has all of these conservative white southerners in it, because the Republican Party is quite liberal in certain parts of the North, basically there's no way of having representative democracy play the role we want it to play, which is a competition of policies and ideas. How does that start to unwind? I think that's a pretty well-known story at this point, but how is it that we get from those political parties who bear no real resemblance to how we think of political parties today to the present day? Yeah, I think it's worth really emphasizing for a moment how different it was, because the fact that we use the same labels for the political parties of that era, right, it was a Democratic Party or Republican Party, it creates an illusion of stability in American yeah. politics. And so as you kind of pop around this period, things really, really change. So you have in this era, you could be a Democrat in South Carolina and you're voting for Strom Thurmond, one of the most conservative members of the U.S. Senate. And at the same election, you could be a Democrat in Minnesota and you're voting for Hubert Humphrey, not just one of the most liberal members of the body, but also one of the members most committed to racial equality. And so we don't like parties in this country. We, going all the way back to George Washington's farewell address, which is in some ways an argument on behalf of a political party, uh, claiming itself to be an argument against all political parties, which is how we do it a lot, right? Hmm. Partisanship is bad, but like my party is right. right, right. But we don't Partisanship like... is bad and the way to beat partisanship is whatever you do agree with me. Exactly. Which, to be fair, I deeply believe. <laughs> I deeply believe. But we have, a, we have that tradition going back a long way. And so we don't like to admit that the fundamental power voters have is in which party to vote for. We individualize American politics. We pretend that what you're doing really is voting for this member of the U.S. Senate, that member of Congress. But overwhelmingly, members of the Senate and members of Congress, particularly nowadays in, in a polarized era, they do what the parties tell them to do. Um, the Affordable Care Act has perfect party line voting more or less around it. So do most things that come before Congress. So the central choice voters make in democracies like ours, party democracies, is which party to support. But then if the party is not honoring the choice they made, if the party of that Democrat in South Carolina voting for Strom Thurmond is not upholding something roughly like Strom Thurmond's view of how America should be governed, then a lot of that person's vote more or less got thrown away or canceled out or at least confused. And same for the voter for Hubert Humphrey in Minnesota. The way that breaks down is, I think, pretty interesting to think about. The Civil Rights Act doesn't end it all at once. And I think this is something people don't appreciate. Changing a political identity is so hard that even after a rupture like that, it took a lot of generational cohort replacement, to say it in the esoteric way, people dying and a new generation of voters rising up that really turned and, and people said, oh, like, well, I'm a conservative. Shouldn't I be with the Republican And, and the reason is that if you're a deeply conservative white southerner or even a just straight out racist white southerner who, you know, let's say is 45, 50 years old in 1960, You've always voted for the Democratic Party. Your father has voted for the Democratic Party. Your grandfather has probably voted for the Democratic Party. And, the and it's likely you will continue to vote for the Republican Party until you die. Yes. So you might be 90 years old by the time that Bill Clinton is running for president. And you're going to vote for him because you vote for the Democratic Party, even for actually on all of the substance. By then, the Democratic Party no longer stands for 
your views and your preferences about America. Right. And I think it's important to, to say why this was happening. The Republican Party had invaded and occupied the American South, at that point in living memory. Mm. And so there was a deep enmity towards the Republican Party that went far beyond just policy. And in the South, the Democratic Party was a very different institution. It was functionally, and Robert Mickey's Pass Out of Dixie is a great history of this, but it's functionally running an authoritarian um, one-party state in the South dedicated to the protection of um, white supremacy. And it acts nationally as the organism for like the South's foreign policy with the rest of America. And so you're in this very weird point. So Civil Rights Act emerges, um, obviously Lyndon Johnson being one of the key players there. But it's a striking thing to go back to that era and recognize how we had very polarized debates that were not polarized by party. So the Civil Rights Act, more Republicans in Congress, a higher proportion of Republicans in Congress vote for it than Democrats in Congress, again, because of the Southern Democrats. So in many ways, the Civil Rights Act could have been understood if we thought more about Congress as a Republican victory, certainly as much as a Democratic victory. Everett Dirksen, the Republican minority leader in the Senate, is one of the real heroes of that story. What happens is that Barry Goldwater then runs on an anti-Civil Rights Act platform. That more or less begins to establish the Republican Party in this fusionism of ideological conservatism and white resentment politics as a vehicle for this white backlash movement. Um, Goldwater, for the first time, for Republican wins a number of states in the old Confederacy. And that's what begins to break down the alliance. And then over time, a lot of these players just switch parties. Strom Thurmond doesn't end his career as a Democrat. He becomes a Republican. And you can name that for a lot of people in Texas. You can name it for Jesse Helms. I mean, that was true for a lot of these folks. They switched parties or eventually they left. And I think there's part of that was the weird thing that had blocked American politics, which was functionally the Civil War and its aftermath, begins to just recede out of memory mm -hmm. and the parties slowly begin to stabilize in the construction you would have expected them to be for a long time before that. Uh, the other thing that political scientists will tell you is that one of the things that is happening and creates this pressure, because I think it's an interesting question, why does the Democratic Party do this? The Democratic Party is a party that in its core commitments is about economic redistribution from the rich to the poor. And one of the things that eventually leads you to is a lot of the people who are poor in the country, both now but also very much then, are not white, and in particular are African-American. And why are they poor? Well, in part, just lack of economic opportunity, but in part, this crushing level of constant institutionalized racism, and particularly at that time, institutionalized and legally protected violence against them in the South, and not only in the South. And so what begins to happen there is that Democratic parties, like its redistributionary instincts begin to overwhelm this sort of internal collection. And so that's what really sets off not just that realignment, but begins to move towards the Civil Rights Act. It's an alignment around the economic axis of political conflict. So that's a really good description of how you end up getting the polarization of these political parties. And as we're pointing out, that's a really good thing for two reasons, one bigger than the other. The first is that it allows the fight for civil rights, which was very hard to bring at least legislatively to fruition as long as Democrats had to appease its southern part of the coalition. And the second part is something that these political scientists called for, which is, well, suddenly you have a clear choice. Even though, as you write, Ralph Nader in 2000 claims that the choice between Al Gore and George W. Bush is between Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Uh, clearly, that's not the case. They stand for very different economic policies and very different policies across a whole range of areas. Now, there can, however, be such a thing as too much polarization. And I take it that you think that we are now too polarized in certain ways, so that the nature of our polarization creates all kinds of big challenges for American politics. So if this is what the political scientists recommended uh, 50 years ago, 70 years ago, 
if this has allowed us to overcome the legacy of Jim Crow in the South to some extent, then why should we now be worried about polarization? What are all the things that it's screwing up? So just an interesting irony of this is that I really wonder if we were as polarized by party today as we were then, if we could have passed the Civil Rights Act. Can you imagine it not being filibustered by a Republican party in this construction? So it's an interesting irony of this. It it might have required a depolarized political system Mm. to pass something that sweeping and that serious that created the conditions that would make it very hard to do anything like that in the future. I just want to asterisk that is something worth thinking about. I think a lot about what would happen if we had this political system on the fractures of that era, because it's not like we didn't have a lot of disagreement in the 1960s. So let's double click on that, because that does complicate the usual story about what happened in the 1960s in an interesting way. So what you're saying now is, but well, perhaps actually we could only pass the pretty ambitious civil rights legislation that LBJ passed, because it wasn't such a polarized moment. And so when there was, for various complicated reasons, a sense of a brief consensus along a significant portion of a political class, but we finally have to do something about all of these things, it was possible to get this complicated cross-partisan consensus and the civil rights laws passed with, you know, quite big majorities. Mm -hmm. Now, it may be that it's sort of the one really positive feature of non-polarized political system destroying it was just to say, it's not that you could only get civil rights legislation by polarizing the parties exactly. It is that you could only pass civil rights legislation as long as the political system wasn't polarized. Mm -hmm. But the price of this legislation was to polarize the political system. Yeah. And this goes to, I think, to your question about the APSA report. So there are dissents to that report even at that time, in particular, a very prophetic one by a guy named Austin Rainey. And he basically says that if you think about how the American political system works, which is it it does not permit majorities to govern, you need these high levels of cross-party consensus. Well, if you create highly polarized parties in a system where you need a lot of agreement between parties to function, that system isn't going to function. And so the primary thing that I think makes political polarization such a danger to our system, whether it's too much or too little, those are, I think, interesting questions I don't quite know how to answer. Certainly, I don't enjoy it, but I also think it's not crazy that disagreements express themselves clearly between political coalitions. The problem is you can't govern amidst it. And that's not true in all other countries. There's actually just a great uh, study that was released by three economists through MBER, and they created a polarization data set across nine different countries, uh, reaching back to about 1980. So us and a number of European sort of, you know, relatively rich peer nations. And what they show is that, and this is a little tricky because the data is not exactly the same in every country, but They show that America has been polarizing a lot faster by party over the past Hmm. 40-ish years. But what's interesting about it to me is if you take the levels in that data set seriously, sort of the absolute level of party polarization that is expressed in it, America is not a very big outlier now. Um, The difference between how the parties view each other is like 45 points and the international average is 41. But if you look then, it was a very big outlier. It was like Hmm. down in the low 20s, whereas the average was, again, sort of like closer to the 40s, actually. And so what you're seeing is that America has just been on a path to looking like other political systems do. But the problem is that our political system is very poorly set up for this. There's a lot of argumentation among political scientists that we have a weird system that works better almost as like modified one party rule where you have one extremely strong party for a long period of time and a kind of like a moon party. They call Mm. these like sun and moon parties. And what's interesting, I didn't know this until I began researching this book, but Francis Lee at University of Maryland has written a great book called Insecure Majorities on it. 
this is the most competitive era we've ever had in American politics. I mean, if you stack up presidential and congressional vote totals and power, we've just had very, very long periods where not only did one party win more reliably, but the majorities that stacked up are much, much larger. So for much of the post-Civil War period, it's the Republican Party. For much of the post-New Deal period, it's the Democratic Party. And then lately, like things just flip back and forth almost constantly. And there's never been a period in American politics quite like this one. So that's also uniquely difficult in a system where you need this high level of cross-party consensus to operate because the fundamentally, this resolves down to zero-sum competitions for power. And the minority party does not want to give the majority party a good argument for why it should retain power because it's governing so well. There's a ton of really interesting things in this, but let me start with the piece of it that I'm puzzled by, which is that one way of thinking about polarization is, you know, 50% of the population are over here and 50% of the population are over there and they all hate each other and they all always vote for the same parties. That's overly simple, but it's sort of, I think, what's somewhere in our brain when we think about polarization. Now, that would predict very, very stable levels of vote. But what you were just saying is that actually they, they go up and down a lot, but they differ a lot. Is it just that we're very closely matched, that it's sort of, these are two runners running a 100-yard dash and they're just as good as each other and so tiny factors decide who wins each time? Or is it that actually people do change their mind a lot more than they did in previous periods. And if that's the case, doesn't that sort of go slightly against the model of what we have in our head when we talk about polarization? Yeah, the answer is no, they don't. We've become much, much, much more stable in our voting behavior and who we vote for. So cross-ticket voting has plummeted. Um, the correlation between who you're voting for, I hope I remember this right from the book, who you're voting for for House and who you're voting for for President has gone from I think it was like a little bit less than 0.5 in, in for a lot of American history. It's gone up to 0.98. So it's like almost perfect. And there's just data over data on this. There's a great study by a guy named Corin Schmidt, and it shows that independents today, self-described independents, are as stable or more stable in their party choice than self-described strong partisans were in the 70s. And it's easy once you begin to think about it why that was. Let's say you're in the South in the 70s. You're like, yeah, I'm a Democrat. My daddy was a Democrat. Like, we're, we're Democrats. But I mean, I vote for like some Republican presidents because like some of those like national Democrats were Looney Tunes. Right, right. And so you had a lot of that. And so, no, we've actually become much more stable. There's another great study in here from Alan Abramowitz where he just shows that it used to be that states would have, I think it's a nine point swing in their presidential vote election to election. And now it's under two points. Mm -hmm. So we've become vastly more predictable. The strange thing is that we fit the first condition. You said we're very closely matched. And interestingly, political scientists don't have a good explanation for why we're so closely matched now. Yeah, and I mean, this is part of a puzzle of a 2016 election, which is, you know, okay, so why are two parties closely matched? Well, one answer is that each is trying to maximize the share of the vote. That's what political parties do. Mm -hmm. And if both of them are reasonably good at doing that, and they figured out a relatively reliable method of getting close to 50%, and they stick with it, then they're just going to keep being relatively closely matched. But that theory, again, doesn't really seem to be conformable with one party just completely changes up its playbook, goes from Mitt Romney to Donald Trump, has a completely different rhetoric, at least in the campaign, a different set of promised economic policies, certainly a very, very different rhetoric on matters of identity and race. And lo and behold, they come out of the same place again. So perhaps in order to get to that, we have to get to this idea that the identities now are overlapping. Because I think if we just talk about partisan identity, we don't quite get there. If you just think about people care really strongly about economic policy and about a bunch of other policies, you can't explain why the same people who voted for Mitt Romney in 2012 also voted 
before Donald Trump in 2016. Mm -hmm. But here, drawing on the work of Liana Mason, which I've also written about, you sort of point out the way in which all these identities are overlapping, that we don't just have partisan identities. And in fact, those are in some ways perhaps just downstream from other kinds of identities. We have identities by, by ethnicity, by religion, by geography, by lifestyle, by all kinds of different things. And so what it is to be a Democrat today is not just to have some set of views about free trade. It is to be a highly educated urban liberal who is atheist or agnostic or not especially devout, who is either a member of a sexual minority or very friendly towards sexual minorities and all of these other kinds of things. And so even if the avatar of your political party suddenly becomes quite different, as long as they are enough of an avatar to, to still be the marker for this identity coalition, we're all going to stick with that because we still want to express those deep identities as educated urban liberal, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, I think this is a key point. And as you say, policy is not really the core divide in American politics. The parties change policy, certainly over the course of a couple decades, pretty dramatically. I mean, if you go look at Bill Clinton's 1996 Democratic Party platform, it sounds on immigration like Donald Trump does today. Like the Democratic Party's move very far left on some of these issues, just as the Republican Party's move very far right on some of them. Or if you go look at the Republicans in 76, their party platform says, we have a deep divide in our party on abortion. There are people in our party who believe abortion should be available on demand, and there are people who believe it should never be available at all, and we respect that difference. And that is not what the party platform reads like today. And so there are changes in the policies, but they, in many ways, like go backwards from what the party coalitions look like. Part of what was happening there was a reassortment of evangelical white voters into the Republican Party that begins to, to create different dynamics around that in that particular issue, similar to the Democratic Party with Hispanics and immigration. And so the parties are these collections of our groups. And our group identities are myriad. One annoyance I have is identity politics makes identity sound singular. One of the titles I did not use for the book was Identities Politic, because as but, you say- Very clever, but uh, not as clear as what I, I, I watched your, your, your face crinkle <laughs> as you thought of it. That's why I didn't use it. <laughs> but I do think it's a point we're thinking about. And so- we know that we can have identities that are cross-cutting or identities that are stacked. So you can be an older white man who lives in the South, who's a union member, who's an evangelical, who's an agnostic religiously, and, and on and on and on. And so you have some identities pulling you in different directions. Your neighbors are different, you know, so on and so forth. That is very good at moderating partisanship. Right. Um, it's actually much more powerful than policy is. Mason has this great study where she shows that if you look at Republicans whose policy preferences should make them Democrats or Democrats whose policy preferences should make them Republicans, that is much less effective at moderating their level of partisanship mm -hmm. than if you look at Republicans who have a lot of cross-cutting identities that put them sort of closer to the Democratic right. groups. So they might be deeply conservative, yeah. but they went to an Ivy League school and have a bunch of liberal friends. They live, in, they live in Washington, D.C. Exactly. or something, right? Mm -hmm. And so they know that these people on the other side, who have fundamental ideological disagreements, are good people because they're the neighbors and friends and so on, right? Whereas if you live in a community where you're very strongly aligned with people with your views, if you're, for example, a pretty liberal person living in Washington, D.C., like the two of us are, and most of the people around you well, are pretty liberal. California now. Uh, oh, sorry, that's a deeply conservative place. Um, uh, Northern California, a readout of American conservatives. Uh, absolutely. But I naturally. grew up, interestingly, in Orange County, which was right. very conservative when I grew up there and only recently has become to trend blue, it's a, it's, which is a, it has a very fascinating politics all its own. But the point is that when your politics matches that of the geography around you, 
it's much easier to say, well, everybody who disagrees with me must be an evil person because I don't have to square that with, you know, Bob, who's my neighbor, or Jane, who's, you know, my child's teacher, who's a wonderful person, and all those kinds of things. I've been thinking a bit about this dynamic. And one reason I think there's been this sharp rise in dialogue and discussion and worrying about the ways in which over Thanksgiving we all have to see our, you know, conservative uncle or socialist aunt or whatever it is. Is that it's so rare, right? One of the few times we have to be in politically mixed settings where people might actually have enough trust to talk about it is with our families because we've moved or segregated into the places that don't face us with that all that often. So I think that's an interesting dynamic. But yeah, everything you say there is true. And I think that one of the places it takes us is recognizing that Particularly if you are an intense political junkie with a like deeply thought through ideology and very sharp views on policies, you are weird. That is not how most right, people experience right. politics. In many ways, I think that the right way to understand how most people experience politics is the intuitive question, do these people like me? Do these people running for president, these people running the House, these politicians, how do they feel about me and the people I think of as like me? But since I'm not sure that you saw that article, but I, I wrote a piece for The Atlantic recently, which I talked about on the last episode of this podcast, which is this idea of a beer test in 2004, which I think gets things exactly backward. So in 2004... Uh, a lot of pundits said, well, how could George W. Bush win against John Kerry? Well, it, perhaps it's because W. is just a more likable guy. He's more fun. And so people who you know, want, would rather have a B with W than with John Kerry. And I think that's getting things the wrong way around. And it's making voters out to be too irrational. Because voters know they're not going to be invited to the White House to have a B over president. So why care whether it would be fun to do so? Whereas the test of whether they would enjoy having a B with me. Yeah. is actually a good heuristic of, are they going to look out for my group and my interests? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are they going to do like when they're, when they're in the office? Am I going to feel judged by the president for the yeah. next four years or not? And so I think the real beer test is the exact opposite of I think what people right. tend to say. Yeah, I mean, there's a very, there's a polling question used for this quite often, which is, does X candidate care about people like me? Yeah. And that's a very powerful question. Look, when you think about how human minds evolved, right, who we are, where we come from, there's something very deep in our mental and social architecture about recognizing group, who's in the in-group, who's in the out-group, who's a member of which group. The part of us that are managing to think through, should China be branded a currency manipulator? Should we abolish all private health insurance or have a public option branded after Medicare? Should we assassinate Soleimani and what should be the reprisals of Iran? Like, you got to work on that, right? right, that, right you right. are working to activate a lot of higher-level cognition. And the point is not that we don't do it or that we don't do it enough. It's just that... That is, it takes time. That is a that is a non-automatic kind of processing. Whereas that person there is threatening me. Mm. They don't like me. Mm. They're making fun of me. Their group doesn't like me. I feel a hot flush when I read what they're saying about mm. me or somebody I really like. That hits really fast. And there's just a huge amount of evidence that people work backwards from those group affiliations into parties. So I'll, I'll just say two quick studies that I think are interesting. One comes years back from a guy named, I want to say it's Jeffrey Cohen, who used to be at Stanford or maybe is at Stanford. And he gave, this was given to college students. So he had these students and he asked them at the beginning of the term, bunch of questions, but one of the questions was, how politically involved were you? are you? And another question was, how much do you care about welfare policy? And so later on in the term, he takes the students who were the most politically involved and so they cared the most about welfare policy. And he gives them articles that are, as always with these studies, like tweaked in different ways. So one of the articles has a very generous welfare policy described. It, you know, it lasts for a very long time, gives you a lot of money, ensures you a job, healthcare, all these different things. It's like way more generous than anything going on in politics right then. 
And another article describes a very stingy welfare policy, kicks you off, work requirements, etc. But what he does is he varies the idea of which party is supporting the policy. And what he finds, of course, is that whether or not people support the policy is based on the party cues around the policy. They trust fundamentally their party to tell them, is this a policy that accords to our values or not? There's another much more recent study, and this was of Donald Trump. Donald Trump (laughs) creates a nice, uh, almost natural experiment because he is such a like a free jazz kind of talker, (laughs) that he takes liberal and conservative positions on all kinds of issues, and people believe that he takes liberal and conservative positions and things he says on all kinds of issues. So a couple of political scientists gave different people... uh, Can can I just object that you're giving free jazz a bad name? (laughs) (laughs) So they they give people issue positions, issue cues, and then they give, what did Donald Trump say about it, right? So some people get the liberal version of Trump's comments, some get the conservative version of Trump's comments. And what they're testing here is if you're very ideologically conservative, that conservatism, that ideology, that worldview, that lens, it should provide an anchor for you, right? It should be a set of values and policies that anchors you against what some politician is saying. But in fact, it is the most conservative people who follow Donald Trump in whatever direction he goes, Mm -hmm. because the conservatism as a policy and worldview is downstream from the conservatism as a group where Donald Trump is the leader of, champion of, protector of that group. Which shows that what it is to be conservative is not to believe in a set of policy positions. It's to support the avatar of your political trap. Mm-hmm. And which is often true for being liberal. I mean, it's so, true for almost all of us. So we have polarization. And we have the way in which polarization maps onto each other, where because of a bunch of changes, including in where we live and who we socialize with and all kinds of other things, suddenly most of the people around us share not just our partisan identities, but a bunch of these other identities as well. Now, what I'm interested in is what should our vision for politics then be for the next 30 or 50 years? And I don't just mean sort of what little pieces of institutional reform should we have or what are the sort of policy fixes in a kind of typical chapter 10 of a political book. How dare um, you, number one. Uh, is it chapter 10, in fact? It's like, I sure. think it's literally chapter 10 of <laughs> well, my book. There you go. Well, you know the chapter 10 problem, which is that you're always going to be criticized yeah, yeah, the last for whatever chapter in chapter problem, 10, yes. right? I mean, it's, but here's the question. I think there is now a deep debate on the left about what to do on this, right? And so there is people who, the term is a little strange, but people who explicitly say, well, what we need is identity politics, right? What the future of a democratic party should be is to say, we are this particular collection of ethnic, religious, and ideological tribes. The Republican Party has become very homogeneous. It's mostly white Christians. We are sort of the party of the other groups. And what we need to do is to harden those identities, to lean into them, to mobilize people on our own side. And the good thing, the attractive thing about this vision is that since these groups are growing, particularly sort of ethnic minorities are growing as a share of the U.S. population, we're going to be able to win for the next 30 or 50 years. And so that's the way forward. Then there's other people who worry, I would say, on one of two grounds. One is a sort of empirical skepticism about this, to say, well, actually, holding together all of these different groups is incredibly hard. And to assume that the dividing line in American politics is always going to be roughly between white and Christian and everybody else doesn't take seriously the way in which party coalitions have shifted in the past. And so this is not actually a winning recipe. That's one objection. The other objection is, well, if we're worried about polarization at some level, if despite the problem of a non-polarized politics we had in the past, 
if despite some of the ways in which polarization might actually be politically productive, we think this political moment is hell. <laughs> and we continue shouting at each other, we're not getting anything done. Americans are hating each other more and more and more. You get the rise of very scary and dangerous figures like Donald Trump. Uh, shouldn't we be thinking about how we can depolarize the politics? What's your vision? I mean, you know, forget about how to get there, but the best case scenario for where we're going to be at 30 or 40 years from now, what would that look like? What role would identity and polarization play in that America? So I'm going to do the thing where I answer some questions I wish I was asked on, on the road to the... <laughs> but you, you, so you're, the first, you're welcome to do that and then yeah. I'll ask this question again. <laughs> yes, no, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. But I think there's some, some intermediate points. One thing I want to say first is I don't think there is any of these visions in this debate. And I want to be super clear about this. It is not based on identity politics. A big argument of the book is that in using identity politics, actually the way you used it there, we are making it impossible to see the true role of identity in politics. It is not the case that it is only the pluralistic coalition that has more racial diversity and so on that is using identity politics. If you're a socialist with a red rose after your name on Twitter, that's identity. Like, you've created an identity group. If you, like, go and have an intellectual dark web shirt, it's an identity. And the first point is that you know, there is clearly a white identity politics. And I just want to make clear that quite explicitly, perhaps implicitly, I was emphasizing that the Republican Party today is a vehicle of white identity politics. That's a point that's not often acknowledged, but I think it's quite obvious, right? There is another question, though, about, you know, I think there's a little bit of what David Dennett calls a deepity going on in this, which is a deepity. So a deepity, yeah, a deepity is all you need is love, which has a trivial and straightforwardly true meaning, and a very controversial and not at all straightforwardly true meaning, right? So on one is like, well, if, if you're in love and everything is great, and perhaps that's sort of true, right? But like, in order to make sure that the coronavirus doesn't kill us all, you need something other than sure, love, yes. right? Like um, yeah, it's a great phrase. And, and, and I think there's a little bit true of identity, right? So look, of course it is true that political partisans have identities. Actually, a lot of American citizens don't have strong political identities because they don't care about politics, right? Don't, yes. but, but the people who are politically engaged yes. all have some form of strong identity. Now, I do think in a democracy, uh, there's reason to think that there's a difference between an ideological identity, between uh, even a red rose on Twitter, which is not, they, they tend to not like me, so I'm not always a fan of them. Um, but I think there's a difference between that strong partisan identity and an identity that is explicitly around race and religion. And the reason is all of the things we're talking about in the book, which is that we know from all of human history that when human groups are divided along the lines of political ideology, that can go badly wrong, as it has in various civil wars and so on. But when they are divided along lines of race or religion, that tends to go wrong much more easily and often much more disastrous. But, but there's something super interesting in the way you frame that, because and I do want to push this, because I'm actually using it in the second version of the deepity. Like, I'm saying it in the hard version that I want people to do some serious thinking about. Not like, oh, haha, everybody's got identity. That means, like, everything nets out to zero and we can't have the conversation. I actually think we've kept ourselves from seeing important, like, psychological and political micro-foundations of how these things function. Race and religion are super different things. Now, like, race is, you know, we can have the debate, it's a social construct, like, we've, but nevertheless, like, it is true that you can often see somebody's race visibly, they can't, like, 
take it off when they leave or go into another context. Whereas religion is, you know, I know a lot of people will not like this exactly, but it is in many ways more like an ideology. It is a set of beliefs you have around the world. I can't necessarily see your religion, and you can change your religion if you so choose. People do it all the time. Mm -hmm. And yet we see religion uh, correctly as a foundational form of identity, right? Race and religion, right? And you could also say race and gender, race and geography, right? Urban rural is a super powerful form of identity conflict. In some ways, I think it might actually be the most powerful form of identity conflict right now, but we rarely see it, I think, as clearly that way. Although, you know, from looking at uh, statistics in all of these different populist far-right elections across Europe, you can tell a lot by knowing if somebody's voting from a rural area or from and a, equally a, in the United States. I mean, the, equally the, the United States. So of I, voters, how many people live within the next square so mile? The, the thing that I want to push here is mm. not that there's not a difference between the way certain identities begin in us and even the way they operate in us, because there very much is, but that at a certain point, a lot of different things operate like an identity. Um, that's true for interests, it's true for ideologies, it's true for beliefs, it's true for gender, it's true for all kinds of things. It is important to have a clear understanding of how those are operating on us psychologically and how they're fusing with other things to be able to argue them out. I know this may feel like a little bit of a, like a, like a cul-de-sac from the original question here, but the reason I push it is that I think it is important to say that we are not going to somehow have a future free of identity politics. And I think the people who believe we will are, are deeply wrong. The issue is really going to be, can people create more holistic, more useful, and to some degree even more universal identities that can become a premise for politics? So an argument I wish I had made more in the book is that I think part of the strength of American identity in the 20th century was actually the Soviet Union. Identities tend to be well activated under threat. And I do think one of the generators of our current political conflicts is actually the lack of an external enemy binding an identity here, which is allowing a lot more of the fractiousness of our identities here to be the primary forms of identity conflict we feel and identity threat we feel in a daily way. Yeah, I mean, one of the sort of most outlandish but interesting political science studies is where they ask people how they feel about, I believe it's different ethnic groups within their own country. And then they premise the same question with, by the way, we've just discovered aliens and they exist and they pose some kind of threat. And then they ask them, how do you feel about different identity groups in your country? And people say, oh, much better, actually, because we're not aliens. <laughs> you remember right? Reagan used to do this with, with Soviet leaders, famously. Right, right. He would ask them, but don't you think if there was an alien invasion, our peoples would be yeah, together? I mean, and he was a, right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good instinct. <laughs> but look, I think the term identity politics is not very helpful, and we agree on that. I also agree with you that any functioning democratic politics is always going to have factions, right? Mm -hmm. What Madison calls factions. Yeah. Side note, I think that's sort of what you mean by identity, actually. It's a kind of faction, right? People who have some kind of label, explicit or implicit, by which they are led and which say, yes, that's us, mm -hmm. right? And so the founding insight of the United States is that there will always be factions. Yeah. And democratic politics can't eradicate factions. It's a question of how to manage them. Mm -hmm. Now, my instinct to put my cards on the table is that those factions can be organized in different kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. If I had a choice right now, and it's not clear to me that we have a choice, and that's a big empirical question we have to discuss, I would much rather choose for the factions in 2050 to be organized around any number of dimensions other than ethnicity or religion. Now, one way of getting there is simply to ignore the discrimination of and the structural disadvantage faced by certain groups saying, well, you know, we don't think that you should ever organize around ethnic or religious lines, and so therefore let's just ignore the fact that you're actually maltreated in horrible ways. That's clearly not what I want to do. That's clearly not an option. But I do worry in this political moment that 
in response to the white identity politics of Trump and the Republican Party. We don't just realize the perhaps the inevitability, if it is inevitable, or to some extent the tactical need for counter-mobilization. But we say this is good, right? Actually, it's absolutely natural and fine that the most salient identity that people have is by ethnicity and religion, because we have a theory about how that's actually going to help us, in quotation marks, on the liberal democratic side win in the long run. But when I think of America in 2050, and I assume that even more so than today, you can walk down the street and look at somebody and say, oh, that person seems to have quite a lot of melanin in their skin, so I'm you know, pretty sure that they're going to be voting Republican. And that person looks pretty pale, so they're definitely going to be voting for Republicans. That sounds to me like a country that will have even deeper problems than we do today. Now, it's not clear to me how we make sure that that doesn't happen, but I worry that the sort of slightly glib dismissal of worries about sort of any form of identity politics and so on makes it impossible for us to see that point. That yeah. if we keep playing the movie out as it does at the moment, the most salient identity 40 years from now is going to be race and ethnicity and religion to some extent. And even in the world in which that does allow Democrats to win 50% plus one, it's going to mean political paralysis, deep mutual anger, probably deep ongoing discrimination and perhaps being on the verge of civil war given the you know, current distribution of power and so on. And so, you know, I am persuaded by a lot of the empirical evidence you lay out in this book. I don't know that the book has given me something as I'm chewing on. How do we make sure that isn't the America of 2050? Oh, definitely. Definitely the book does not give you a path to that not being the America of 2050. And I mean that very seriously. So look, I have a couple of thoughts on this. And one, I agree with you. I don't think people should have a glib dismissal of any of the concerns here, right? Like the point of this book is not that politics as you're practicing it now is good. I think, as you say, this book is grim in a lot of ways. I've had a number of people describe it to me as a nightmare. <laughs> well, welcome to the club. This yeah, is, right. Uh, like, this say, this is, like some, some reviewers said it, uh, it has like the logical force of a nightmare, which is like, yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> um, but I, I will say a Your couple things. seem to be more logical than, than mine. <laughs> this book is more logical than my nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple things here, though, that I do think are important. So one, 2050 or 50 years from now, um, if I guess it would be 2070, is I don't even know what to think about that, right? Maybe we live in the world of AI that is tainted super. So it's very hard for me to think too far into the future. But what I do think is that we are caught right now in a period of very profound disequilibrium. I mean, we were talking earlier about competitiveness, but it's true for what's happening demographically, too. I have a chapter in the book about demographic change. And one of the reasons I think our identities are becoming increasingly inflamed around issues of race and to some degree religion is because we're actually in a period, although we don't talk about it all that much, of quite profound change around race, religion, and immigration. So we are on a path right now to become a racially majority minority country in the 2040s, roughly. It's also the same time demographers think that no religious affiliation will pass Protestant as the single largest religious group. Um, and already, by the way, it's the single largest religious group in the Democratic Party. So right now, I think it is seven of 10 seniors are white and Christian, and uh, three of 10 millennials are. Just as a footnote, I, I think those demographic projections are reasonably reliable. They obviously depend a lot on political decisions around immigration. But other than that, they're pretty reliable because of the long-run trends. The religious question is, is way more complicated. I mean, nobody in 2000 would have predicted that, that Brazil, which I know you have roots in, 
would now be, you know, between 30 and 40 percent evangelical Protestant. Absolutely. We can't possibly know, but I also did not ask a question about what things are going to be like 50 years from yeah, now. No, no, so, no, sure, sure. so I got to work with what we have. Um, and then the other point, which, which you know well, is that we've gone from roughly 4 percent of the country being foreign born in the 1970s to it's about 14, 15 percent now. And it's expected to become a record number, which would be a couple points above this um, over the next two or three decades. And so we are in a period where things are changing in a way that is more than fast enough to feel. And a, a point I make on the book, which I think is an interesting point, and it was explained to me by Robert Jones, who's the head of the Public Religion Research Institute. He makes a point that politics operates 10 years behind demography, and then culture often operates 10 years ahead of it. Hmm. So if you think about what's happening on television or brands, right, advertising, advertising is very woke. So every Super Bowl now, we have this national tradition of arguing over some very woke Super Bowl ad. There was a Gillette ad about, is this the best a man can get? And it was all these dads excusing Me Too style behavior while barbecuing, or, you know, there's this multiracial Cheerios ad or whatever. And so what's happening is that a lot of the culture is pushing towards a more demographically diverse America in a lot of different directions. Culture is like centered in these like young, urban, et cetera. And it wants to get young people right. Um, television ratings don't even care who's watching, who's not between 25 and 54. It's like a whole weird mm -hmm. place. And on the other hand, if you look at um, both demographics and geography in the country, it amplifies the power of whiter, more rural, more Christian voters. So what's happening right now is everybody feels a little bit like they're losing and possibly winning. So Republicans have a lot of political power, but really feel themselves losing cultural power. Democrats have a lot of cultural power, but feel quite locked out with the exception of the House of political power and feel correctly like the system is biased against them geographically. And so that's a very unstable equilibrium. So one possible answer to what you're saying is that over the next 20 or 30 or 40 years, the demographic change will go forward enough that it will not be a plausible route to power to make these the most salient points of competition. So let's talk about this from the perspective of Donald Trump. Imagine if in 2016, Donald Trump had run for office. He had won the Republican Party by being much more anti-immigrant and giving voice to more of these nativist, nationalistic, xenophobic emotions than the other candidates had. And so he had become the nominee. And then in the end analysis, despite how weak Hillary Clinton proved herself to be during the primary and during the, the general, Donald Trump Unfortunately for him, yep. lost by 3 million votes, hmm. right? Which is a lot of votes to lose by. Uh, many people have lost by fewer. And that made Hillary Clinton the president of the United States. And so Republicans had blown a winnable election, right? It was very clear that Marco Rubio could have beat her, very clear that John Kasich could have beat her. But instead, the nativists in the Republican coalition, they picked Donald Trump. And now Hillary Clinton is going to fill the key Supreme Court seat that Andon Scalia vacated and destroy America and so on. If Republicans were as exposed to some of the um, popular vote failures of their current ethno-nationalist coalition and appeal, they would have to make some different decisions. They wouldn't control the Senate, and because they didn't control the Senate or the presidency, they wouldn't control the Supreme Court. And in those conditions, parties eventually do reform. So I think one way to think about it, and we've seen this happen in a state like California, which had its own moment like this, you know, roughly 20 years ago, Pete Wilson, Prop 187, people know some of that story or should look it up if they don't. Um, you can't run a Trumpist coalition in California now. It doesn't mean you can't be a Republican, and I expect you will have Republican governors in the future. Schwarzenegger was Republican governor not very long ago at all. 
but you can't run it this way. And so maybe we will just like get out of this place where the two coalitions are evenly matched enough, in part due to geography and weird things about our system, that like you can have the fight be this way. And instead, there's just going to be a period where the demography swamps this kind of political cut. And so the Republican Party needs to find a new way to appeal because people ultimately do want power. I think that's the optimistic version of it. We're just trapped in a very unstable equilibrium where nobody has enough power to set the terms of the debate. There's a very vicious, very desperate tussle for who's going to have power. So that seems exactly right to me. Now, for me, that's perhaps a more important point than it is for you. I mean, when I'm thinking about politics and I'm working on a book proposal at the moment, which has its chapter explicitly on this point, I think that's the scenario we've got to root for. The worst case scenario is that Trumpist populism manages to broaden its demographic coalition just a little bit and to undermine the political system sufficiently that it basically perpetuates itself in, in power for large stretches of the next 30 or 40 years. Yeah. To me, the second worst outcome, a lot better, but not good either, is what, you know, when I read something like Rutik Serra's 2008 report about the emerging demographic majority, in a way was the thing the Democrats were dreaming of. And I think Rui is actually very thoughtful about this stuff, but it's easy to go from that to what well, all we need to do is to keep making sure that the current division along ethnic and religious lines in American life continues and deepens. And because our side of that line is growing, so it's interesting to think about what we mean by our in this and to white men. But, I didn't say our. I'm, no, I'm, I know. A, I'm an impartial journalist just observing political of, of trends. Course, of course, that's right. If our side of the coalition keeps growing, then we'll just win and win and win. And as I was pointing out earlier, that's a lot better than Trump being in power, but I don't think that's a good America. That's not going to be a nice place to live for anybody. So I think when we think about how we're polarized now and how we can get to a moment where we're not just a little less polarized than we are now, but the thing that's perhaps more important about polarization does not make vast swaths of the population feel insecure in the basic belonging in this country, where it doesn't allow governments to do the kinds of things that the Trump administration has been doing at the southern border and so on. I think the only path I see to that is precisely to make sure that politics depolarizes among ethnic and religious lines to some extent. How do you make now, sure of that? Well, I don't think that there's a ton that we can do to that. I don't have the sort of very easy solutions. I do think that there's two things that can happen. The first is, straightforwardly, that Republicans have to reform themselves. And the sensible voices in the Republican Party that are very few and far in between at the moment, but that, for example, in 2012, after Mitt Romney's electoral defeat, were at least formally dominant in the party and wrote a report that precisely said, hey, we had too few of the Latino vote, too few of the African-American votes. A lot of these people are quite conservative and all kinds of things. We might be able to increase that share of the vote if we get immigration reform done and reach out to those segments of the population. That faction of the Republican Party is inexistent at the moment, but parties can change quickly and we can hope that the decent people on the political right will come to live another day. I do also wonder whether there's things that we on the left can do. I think one thing we can do is to, and that's not easy to do, nominate a candidate that doesn't just mobilize the base. It, we have to mobilize the base, but also reaches out to the political middle. And I don't mean the sort of, you know, highly informed, moderate, whatever voter, but people who were, for example, Obama-Trump voters. Because I don't think this election is just about beating Trump. I think it's about, as you were implying earlier, beating Trump so crushingly, so clearly, 
that the Republican Party is more likely to reform itself. And then the third thing is that I do think that there are starting to be certain cultural norms, which aren't particularly the cultural norms of minorities in this country. They are more the cultural norms of highly politically informed spaces inhabited by a lot of rich people with postgraduate degrees who are overwhelmingly white, which do speak very condescendingly of everybody who's ever voted for Donald Trump, that do speak very condescendingly of anybody who doesn't use the right terms about certain things, that do speak very condescendingly about anybody who disagrees with our political views on things. So let me give one example from the electoral campaign so far. You know, when Elizabeth Warren was asked in the LGBTQ town hall what she would say to somebody who's a supporter of hers or a potential supporter of hers, agrees with her on a lot of things, but comes from a very religiously conservative background and doesn't like the idea of same-sex marriage. She said two things. The first of which I think is perfectly fine. And the second I worry about. The first thing she said is, what I would say to him is, he should go and marry a woman. Which I think is a good way of decreasing threat. It's saying, look, this change doesn't affect you and your life. We're not asking you to change your personal life. We're just asking you to recognize that love is love. And, and love, love is all you need. Uh, love is all you need. <laughs> it's a nice liberty. But then she added, if you can find one. And that's basically saying, look, if you disagree with me on this, if you have a different view, and I strongly believe in same-sex marriage, very explicit about this, but if you disagree with me on this, it's not just that you're wrong on this. It's not just that you might come from a very religiously conservative household, whatever the case may be. It's that you must be ugly and stupid and the kind of guy who no woman would want to go to bed with. And I do think that that is indicative. And as before, is far from the worst culprit on this, but it is indicative of a kind of sneering, self-satisfied tone. And I do worry, and I don't want to overstate our agency here, but I do worry that that makes it all the easier for people on the other side to find an excuse to go and take refuge in their identity. Oh, definitely. To say, all of these people, they just want to wipe us out. They want to get rid of everything in this country that's like me. And look at what they're saying. So in that case, now, why should we reform our party? Why should we reach out to people who are a little different from us in certain descriptive characteristics, but who might actually agree with other areas of public policy or other ways of seeing the world, other social values? I have a bunch of thoughts on this. And one, I, I think you're right. Let me say something about what I'm trying to do in the book, because I think it's important for this. I am trying in the book to show the incentive structures in which politicians and voters and others are operating. And the first half of the book is a story about how America polarized, but the second half of the book is a story about institutional feedback loops feeding into polarization. The way a more polarized audience in an age of media choice creates a more polarized media, and the more polarized media further polarizes the audience, which further polarizes media, which further polarizes the audience. Elections in an age with fewer persuadable voters become more about base mobilization. So what Elizabeth Warren is doing there, and I, I know that moment not because I watched that uh, town hall, but because that moment was super viral. Right. People loved it. People on loved Twitter, it. Yeah. Right. And Twitter is a place that is all about affirming and expressing your identity and whose side you're on and dunking on the people you don't like. And so one of the things happening is that I think we often look at political figures. I want to say this kind of clearly. I think we overestimate how much agency political actors actually have versus how much they are responding to structural incentives. An example of this is that it is possible that at various town halls, Elizabeth Warren has answered similar questions in much more open-hearted ways, right? And we never heard about them. Or I think about this with Barack Obama, who was in some ways a very masterful 
politician doing exactly what you're talking about, right? He was a politician who median Barack Obama speech was about inspiring his side, but also reaching out. He had an almost verbal tick where you would ask him something and he would respond with like, well, people on the other side, and he would give a pretty good account of counter yeah, arguments. Yeah, pretty fair account of- And then, of, you know, the yeah. place I come in, and if you go back and read Audacity of Hope, I mean, he says- things to identify with conservative views on race, on immigration, that I think a Democratic politician would be cut apart for saying today. Oh, I, so, I, I, so, I thought well, as, a, as a slightly trollish maneuver, which I didn't end up doing and will not do so I can reveal it, of, of tweeting out bits from Dreams of My Father on Twitter. Oh my God, yeah. Without identifying it. And I know that every single one of those tweets would have gotten ratioed and, and, yeah. and gotten me called a bigot. So the thing I was going to say about Obama was... Even so, what did the right hear about, know about from Obama? That bitter comment, right? I mean, you still hear about Obama saying on some fundraiser where he's caught on mic that, you know, people after their, and it's a pretty actually normal analysis. Right, they cling to their guns, they cling to their guns and, and after their like factories leave and so on. And so one other thing is that it's also about what gets amplified. Politicians say a lot of things. Sometimes they say things that are better versus worse. And the politicians who are succeeding and getting amplified, I think it'll be very interesting to see where the Democratic Party goes in this particular campaign because some of the different frontrunners have very different approaches on this. Joe Biden is very much a politics of, he's trying to do in his own way an Obama restoration politics and reach out. Pete Buttigieg very much runs like 2008 Barack Obama. It's very, I think, even consciously patterned off of that. Um, Bernie Sanders has a different view, which is that you can calm down some of these divisions and he gets in trouble for this too in a different way. I would say that Bernie Sanders does not like to credit ideological disagreement as a real thing. But one thing that he does want to do is he wants to realign political disagreement more around an economic axis. And his view is that sort of no matter where you are on some of these other issues, could we get together on Medicare for all? You know, and Warren has her approach. And so the Democratic Party is clearly moving in this much more confrontational direction. Uh, I think in some ways pulled there by social media and the incentives of an attentional economy in which the amount of attention you get is about how much people share what you did. The thing that worries me about the thing you are saying is I agree with it as a matter of politics, deeply, actually. I think the kind of politics practiced on Twitter and elsewhere is almost a form of anti-politics. It's a form of not expanding your coalition, not reaching out. It's a form of expressing politics. And you were politics. talking about this just a few days before we were recording this because you defended Bernie Sanders sort of publicly celebrating his endorsement from Jerome. Right, and we can talk about that. But the thing that I think is tricky is that I am not sure a politician who is using your playbook will actually be very successful now because of some of how these structural things are changing. Now, maybe I'm wrong on that. Yeah, so, can, see, that's actually yeah. what I was going to say, listening to a very astute point, which is, look, I agree that there's a large percentage of a population who was continually played the least fortunate remarks Barack Obama made and the few and far between because he's a consummate politician. But, you know, they were taken out of context, they were exaggerated. The couple of points when he made actual mistakes were played on loop. And and they ended up thinking that Obama is, is a chronic in this book, sort of trying to wage race war or something like yeah. that. And that's an absurd description Kenyan of Muslim what Barack socialist Obama too. But here's the point about it. That didn't win because Obama won election twice. And it's a point, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this when first Bernie Sanders and then Pete Buttigieg made the point that you know, there's no problem with running on the label socialist because Republicans will always call us socialists. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a half truth because it's true that Republicans have called every Democratic presidential candidate a socialist for the last 60 years. But a lot of the reasons why candidates like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama won is that that charge was credible to parts of the 
further reaches of a Republican base, but not to the people the Democrats needed to win. Mm -hmm. And so we may get a test this electoral cycle of whether you can win as a socialist or not. But the fact that every Democrat was attacked as a socialist just is not a good reason to think that that attack is not a problem if people actually believe it about you. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's true around those issues as well, right? Absolutely, there are people who believed that Obama was a secret Muslim born in Kenya who was sent to the United States to wage race war. And that number of people is unfortunately higher than I'm comfortable with, depressingly high. But it is not the majority of the American population, right? And so I do think that there are elements of individual agency and that Obama is actually a good example of that. Absolutely. I think I was making a slightly different point. I obviously agree with you that Barack Obama won twice, and I think that he would win again if he was running, no doubt about it. I do not know how to run the thought experiment of would Obama win the Democratic primary today or lose it? Hmm. I actually just don't know. I think he might win it. Again, I think he's one of the most talented politicians ever. Right. Um, but nevertheless, well, but he, he might win it, but somebody trying to copy his playbook may not win it if exactly. they don't have his unique And, and so this is a little politics. bit, the, the argument I'm making is not that Obama wasn't a masterful politician. The argument I'm making is that I worry that some of the structural trends are moving further and further away from this kind of politics. So it's like you use a Bill Clinton so, and Obama. In, how do you square yeah. that? And we'll see pretty soon how the primaries shake out. But how do you square that with Joe Biden's lead in the primaries? Pretty weak lead for a former VP. I mean, he's behind in Iowa. He's behind in New Hampshire. And he has a couple points in the national polls. Now, look, I think if we were dealing with the Joe Biden of well, 15 just, years ago, he might have a much bigger lead too, right? If you're a more supple, capable politician today. So the answer is, I don't know. I mean, I think you know that... Let me finish this point just real quick. You know that I just published an excerpt from this book that is about the, the way the different coalitions of the two parties work internally and that... Democrats actually cannot win either primaries or ultimately political power without reaching out to a pretty broad range of voters because you need to win traditional black voters in South Carolina, not just liberal whites in New Hampshire. And then ultimately to win in the Electoral College, you need to win some center-right voters too. So Joe Biden is not, I think, unbelievably strong. He's still not as strong a player and politician as Barack Obama was. But I think it's very possible that that is still the best strategy in the Democratic Party if you're able to pull it off. What I don't think it is, is as dominant a strategy in the Democratic Party as it was in the past. Bill Clinton was much more like that than Barack Obama in an interesting way, right? He was a cross-cutting identities candidate. He often challenged the left. Barack Obama moved a little bit, right? Barack Obama then was more liberal than Clinton, more rooted in the identity coalition of the left, urban, African-American, you know, et cetera. Um, and then also the way he did it was not challenging the left. It was being understanding towards the right. And then you move again here. And I think things are like moving that much more in the direction of candidates who really excite the left, mobilize the base. Maybe Biden can squeak in. But if Biden was running without him being Obama's candidate, there's no chance. And then Pete Buttigieg, a candidate running in some ways most like Obama, he had his rise, but he's also had his fall again. Well, so, he's also the mayor of the fourth largest city in Indiana. I mean, let but me Michael ask, Bennett does not exactly lighten up the airwaves here, right? Nor did Bob Bullock from Montana. So sure, sure. I think the cross-cutting candidates are not performing that well overall this year. Or Cory Booker, who's a, another player of this kind of politics. Yeah, so this gets at a deeper question about the book, which is, to what extent are these structural features? Uh, the constraints, and to what extent is part of the polarization what goes on among a small number of political hobbyists. And the crisis we have is not that the views of the public are so much more polarized than they used to be, but that the political sphere, political operatives, politicians, 
have become captive to the most polarized bubbles. And, you know, one straightforward example is you mentioned Twitter. If journalists had been guided by letters to the editor 20, 30 years ago, the New York Times opened up a random issue from, you know, the 1st of July, 1995, would have looked very different from what it did. But editors knew that the kinds of people who bother to sit down and write a letter to the editor of the New York Times, some of them are very smart and very informed and very sensible, but a lot of them are cranks. A lot of them are the people of the most extreme views, of the most anger. What's changed with Twitter is that those letters to the editor are now public. Mm-hmm. And a lot of other cranks can like and reinforce them. And suddenly it feels like it's something that an institution has to respond to. But I've been struck, and let's go from politics to culture for a moment, by the extent to which the judgment of a kind of cultural elite has become divorced from the constituency. Now, it's always been the case that the media and theater review in the New York Times in 1965, I'm sure, did not bear much resemblance to the views of a median American and the political assumptions underlying it and all of those kinds of things. But it did speak for sort of the 20% of highly educated potential theater goers, I think, right? I mean, this year we've had these interesting phenomena. Again, again, we've had something like Dave Chappelle's stand-up special which on Rotten Tomatoes had 99% audience liking and at 1.7% positive reviews among cultural critics mm. in, you know, the Washington Post and the Atlantic and in the New York Times and so on and so forth, right? I mean, that's a huge gulf. In a way, a similar thing about Joker, the movie, which was described in some of the biggest publications in this country as, as more or less racist, but which actually was a huge audience hit, including among many affluent, well-educated, very liberal people. I think the little controversy around Ricky Gervais's monologue at the Golden Globes was another one of those moments where the consensus from the LA Times to the Boston Globe was, well, this is terrible. But actually, it's not clear to me that they spoke for anything other than, you know, 2,000 people in the media world. Now, I do think there's something along those lines of political campaigns as well, that they are so deeply influenced by Twitter that we haven't quite seen the reality test for them yet. And in a way, I think Bernie Sanders has in some ways become, quote-unquote, more woke since 2016. He's less, he definitely has he's less single-focusedly saying it's about the economy rather than about culture. But nevertheless, he's far from the most woke candidate yeah. in, in the field. And, and Joe Biden notably, is, Joe, he, as he said, he doesn't have any apps on his phone. <laughs> right, right. You know, he, he, yeah, still, yeah. he, he himself the world of operates yeah. in a very different world. Yeah. And, and Joe Biden uh, is uh-huh. not the most woke candidate. And between them, they are clearly leading the, the democratic field at the moment. So is it that the actual views of Americans have polarized so much and those are the, the guardrails that are pushing people towards the extremes? Or is it that there's been a technological shift and the technological shift makes the views of partisans much more visible to political actors and decision makers and media elites. And they haven't yet realized that they aren't speaking as they're thinking to 20 or 40% of the population. They're speaking to 5% of the population. So I think there's a lot there. In general, I think I agree with this account, but let me enlarge it actually in a couple of ways. One is that it's clearly not just Twitter. The run-up in this kind of polarization predates it. And there's actually really interesting evidence 
that um, cable news seems to be bigger in many ways than Twitter and online media. Fox News in particular has a lot more force in the Republican Party than anything has individually in the Democratic Party. So if you look at, for instance, why was Donald Trump's tweeting so important? Well, if you look at who voted for Donald Trump, it's not people on Twitter who are disproportionately young and non-white. It was older Americans who watch a lot of cable news. And so there was like a clear conveyor belt from Twitter being the assignment editor for political journalism to then Trump being able to use it to megaphone into more traditional outlets. So I just want to note that because I think the way it wields influence is unusual. I agree with that. And again, places, it depends yeah. on sort of the decisions of people at Fox exactly. News that it's like the more traditional mm-hmm. media outlet. I mean, so not- I think, yeah. So I think that's an important piece of it. Then to the broader thing you're saying. I think it's undoubtedly true that what you're seeing is very, very, very fast and sharp polarization, but also different kinds of expression and identity expression and group activity among the political elite. And something that I'm trying to do in the book is create a little bit more connective tissue between theories of mass polarization and elite polarization. And the way I see it, more or less, because there's a lot of debate over are just the elite polarizing or is the public polarizing, the elite structure the choices the public gets. So if the political media elite end up only covering Donald Trump and depriving everybody else in the Republican primary campaign of oxygen, which is exactly what happened. And so, like, just take us for the sake of argument, because of that, Donald Trump wins the primary, which maybe he wouldn't have if he had just gotten an amount of uh, coverage that was more consistent with what other people like him had seen in the past. If that happens, then what the public has is a much more polarizing choice. Like it's not, again, for argument's sake, Marco Rubio and Hillary Clinton. It's Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And so things like that end up being very polarizing because one way things polarize is not that the public changes, but that the choices they get change. If we have an election between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, that's just a much more polarizing election than George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton for a lot of different reasons. So these things end up polarizing the public because the public has to live in the worlds politically that elites create. That said, do elites overestimate their power over the world? Absolutely. I mean, look at everything that has happened in recent years. And do elites overestimate who they're speaking for and who they're speaking to? Yes. The biggest problem with Twitter for journalism is that journalists are, by nature, a feedback-hungry professional class, right? We write these things or produce segments or whatever it is that we do, and it goes out into the world and it's like, what? Like, what did people think? What did they want? How did they like it? And what Twitter has created is an incredibly powerful chamber of feedback. Mm. Um, it is our peers who are retweeting it or not retweeting it, heart, you know, giving it a like or not giving it a like. But then it's like the public, and that's how it gets traffic. And then, but then people are attacking you there. And, and so it's this very intense feedback loop. And the true feedback loop most journalists have in their own work is like they publish something, they see how it's reacted to on Twitter, and that informs what they do next time. Now, some people like pissing off Twitter, some people don't, and not everybody is like this, but this is the, the generalized thing. And that does very deeply warp your understanding of what is going on, and it warps what you cover and how you cover it. But as we change what we cover and how we cover it, the choices people actually get become different. So I agree with you that there's a big disjuncture, and I agree with you that it's actually messed up campaign coverage quite a bit as journals like chase down the latest Twitter controversy that the public never hears about or cares about, then everybody's like, well, why is Joe Biden still leading in the polls? But it's a hard thing to know how to change or how it will change. And I say that as one of many editors-in-chief, back when that was my role, who stood up in front of rooms and was like, don't tweet so much. Stop tweeting. Like, it's not helping you. But 
it has taken over everything. And you even see, look, the New York Times does not want its reporters tweeting the way they are, but it has been powerless to stop them. Hmm. So there's structural things happening here that are very hard for individuals to change. I want to ask a last question or perhaps a couple of questions before I thank you for your incredible patience in this long conversation. For your podcasts are always long, so you have to replay the karma a little bit. We've been talking only about the United States, basically. And a lot of the explanations for why we're polarized are very American-centric. They are about uh, specific things to do with the civil rights legislation and the two-party system and the kind of nature of party political compromise that was quite unique in the United States up, up until the 1960s. But when I look around the world, we are getting polarized in, in many places, right? I mean, politics today feels much more fierce and, and cutthroat and nasty in countries from Brazil to Germany than it did 20 or 40 years ago. So as somebody who's somewhat trained in part of politics, that makes me a little bit skeptical of a basic explanation. Because if I'm telling you, hey, here are the 10 things that have caused this, and then I look over there, and I see somebody who has exactly the same thing going on, but none of the causes we've just been talking about actually apply there, then I start to say, well, hang on a second. I mean, if you can get the same outcome, and in fact, you're seeing the same outcome at the same time, in lots and lots of different places, but none of the same causes are going on, then isn't that a reason to think that we're sort of telling a just-so story where we're fastening upon the sort of interesting salient features of the American story, but clearly they're not necessary to get the outcome, so perhaps this is just epiphenomenal? Mm -hmm. I think that's a super interesting question. I mean, this is why I think one of the questions is, is everywhere polarizing? So as I mentioned, there was this NBR paper that recently came out that constructed a multi-decade international measure of polarization. And in this, in this case, it's effective party polarization, right? So how do you feel about your party? How do you feel about the other party? Which is, it seems, the primary locus of polarization here in the U.S. too. And what they found was that in five of the countries, measured, uh, how many countries did they measure nine. roughly? So, so, five, did, uh, so five out of nine. Five of nine. So it didn't measure Brazil. And there, there are definitely countries where there seem to be similar things going on. And I suspect that some technological trends, et cetera, are happening in a bunch of countries. But it is not clear to me this is happening in every country. And certainly it seems to me that the U.S. has had a sharper gradient on it than a lot of countries. Now, what I don't know is if looking at this historical data, the U.S. has had, I want to be careful about this, because something they found was that broadband penetration did not predict polarization. In fact, the countries that had the most broadband penetration had seen um, reductions in polarization. It seems intuitively true to me, if not yet in the data, that some of the technological change we're seeing uh, in terms of where political communication takes place is going to polarize different systems. Um, it is going to lead to more effective polarization. It is going to lead to more polarizing choices. But I can't say that for sure because that, to your point about just so stories, that definitely feels true to me, but I'm certainly not in these other countries watching it. So you're a scholar of far-right populist parties and the rises, and there is clearly something going on there. I would not deny that for a minute. But in terms of over a long period of time, are we seeing a story where everybody's polarizing on an equal slope? At least the best international data I know of doesn't suggest that's happening. And as those researchers, Matthew Gensko, Jesse Shapiro, and Levi Buxell conclude, it suggests something is distinct about the set of factors happening in America, where it's going from a quite low international level of polarization to a quite high international level of polarization. So I can't totally reject the story because I don't know that we can 100% trust the data, but I think that 
I would be curious what you think about their data set and what is the alternative data set you have that suggests we are actually seeing very similar trends in many places. Yeah, so I haven't seen the study and I'll look it up. I saw it discussed in your book. I don't remember which nine countries it, I could look it, it up. Was. This came out after um, the book, to be fair, but I have a Vox article on it. But it was a bunch of Western countries. So the UK is oh, in there, Sweden, Switzerland, Germany, Canada, Norway. Hmm. One of the problems maybe with measurement, and I'm speculating here because I haven't seen the paper, that if you ask people in Germany, you know, you're a social democrat, how do you feel about these different parties? So and they ran, they ran this both using um, a broad party set and then restricting to the two largest parties at a time. Oh, but this is exactly the problem. Because the two largest parties in Germany are the Social Democrats and the Christian Democrats. They did both, I'm saying. Right. But what I mean is, really, the divide in Germany is between the right-wing populists of the alternative of Germany and everybody else. So if you have either, you just look at the two biggest parties, which are Social Democrats and Christian Democrats, of course that polarization has gone down. Because they are now effectively on the same side of the political divide. In fact, they're in government together. Now, if you ask me, how do I feel about this party and about this party and about this party and about this party and about that party, and then you take an arithmetic mean of those five questions, you're still going to come out less polarized because my assessment of four of those parties has improved. My assessment of one of these parties is highly polarized. But that is not a great way of rendering what's actually going on, which is that there is now this deep gulf between the people who vote for the populists and everybody else in German politics. Yeah, and I that think- has completely transformed the the feel and the operation of a political system. And it's not clear to me that either of those ways of measuring it would actually get at that. It's possible. I don't feel this is a debate I personally can settle, but what I would push on it is that it does not seem to me there's evidence that what we're telling here is a just-so story about American politics. I don't see the evidence yet that we are seeing very similar trends all over. I also think that there is media narration about what's happening in a given time. And so in the past roughly four years, there's a lot of attention to far-right populist parties emerging in different parts of the world, some which have become dominant, some which, which really have not. Even the UK is an interesting example here. It's not clear to me the UK is polarizing the way we would think about that. Boris Johnson moderated on a bunch of things to win election, um, not on Brexit, which is clearly a very deep divide. But Brexit, one of the problems in the UK is it doesn't map very cleanly onto party in the way that it should have, or that you would think it did, because Corbyn had this very muddled view on Brexit, and that has to do with labor voters in general being a little bit more split on Brexit. So it is possible also that you have deeper disagreement happening in some of these countries without deeper levels of party polarization. In fact, labor being as weak as it is might suggest a declining level of party polarization. So there's a lot going on here. I don't know how to answer it, but I would reject the claim that there is a super strong case that like everything is seeing the exact same trend line such that we can say that we shouldn't be looking specifically in the American case to understand the American case. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that seems plausible to me is that polarization is going up everywhere. Not everywhere, but in most places. I want to look at the study you mentioned, but I am skeptical of it on the basis of what you were saying about it. It does seem to me that in most of the political systems, I know reasonably well polarization is quite clearly going up. But what you were saying earlier also seems to be true, which is that the United States started from a particularly low level of polarization. And so perhaps the true story is here the specific American factors for why we were so unpolarized 60, 70 years ago Here's how that has unraveled and brought us into the normal realm of polarization. And then there's a separate set of factors which aren't America-specific about why politics in general is becoming more polarized. I guess possible too. Ezra, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be liked, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.